trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I welcome you to the realms of wrong think. Got a great show ahead of us today. A lot of fun stuff to talk about. Some of it's a little serious and some of it's a little lighter. Also have some great sponsors to thank, including Jeff Staples Real Estate, the uh, Staples Turner team at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. So this being an election year, I'm watching with great interest as uh, my 20-year-old son, David, is uh, going over a ballot for the very first time. We get uh, we get mail-in ballots, so uh, he, my wife, and I are all registered to vote. And uh, I've been watching him for the last couple of days, really putting in the time, doing his homework, and, and trying to decide how to best use his vote. And as much as I complain about how, you know, voting really doesn't change anything, um, I'm very proud of him to see him taking it seriously. I think that... Uh, I think every person who chooses to vote should be doing what uh, what David is doing, and that is going over the candidates, not just you know looking over you know the the policy positions. Because let's face it, politicians pretty much will say whatever they need to say in order to to win your vote. But when you look at their background, and this is what he's doing, he's going into it and looking at you know do, have their words and deeds matched? Even if even if they're newcomers to politics, are they the kind of people who can be counted on? To, to have their actions match their words. And it's been fun to watch him do this. I mean, I remember back when I was, uh, what, 18 years old? Yeah, that's, that's when I cast my vote for the first time in, uh, in November of 1984. And I have to admit, I leaned a lot on my parents because, well, they're Republicans and, you know, they, you know, they, I, I pretty much just asked them, who should I vote for? What's, you know, what's the best way to go? Of course, Reagan was running for his second term of office. I felt like that was a no brainer. I, I still feel like I slept better at night when Reagan was president, even though in later years I've learned that some of the stuff he did was pretty damaging to, uh, to freedom. This is true, I think, though, of most presidents. In fact, that's that's one of the constants I've seen over over my lifetime is no matter who's president, the, the government grows bigger and more controlling regardless of who is in power. Nevertheless, there are a lot of local races. <clears throat> There's an awful lot of, you know, uh, judicial retention questions and things like that. And it just it does me good to see my son looking at these things seriously and not just, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, which one makes me feel the best? So I, I want to share with you something that I'm going to share with him. And, and this, is, this may seem kind of harsh, but um, John W. Whitehead just has a knack of cutting through the fluff and getting to the heart of the matter. He had a recent uh, essay that landed in my mailbox the other day. Don't vote for a psychopath. Tyranny at the hands of psychopathic government. Now, I know you're thinking, Really? Are we going to go there? Come on, it's an election year. You should be pretty much immune to this stuff by now. But listen to this comparison. He says, 20 years ago, a newspaper headline asked the question, what's the difference between a politician and a psychopath? 
The answer then and now remains the same. None. There is no difference between psychopaths and politicians. Whitehead says, nor is there much of a difference between the havoc wreaked on innocent lives by uncaring, unfeeling, selfish, irresponsible, parasitic criminals and elected officials who lie to their constituents, trade political favors for campaign contributions, turn a blind eye to the wishes of the electorate, cheat taxpayers out of their hard-earned dollars, favor the corporate elite, entrench the military-industrial complex, and spare little thought for their impact, for the impact, rather, that their thoughtless actions and hastily passed legislation might have on on defenseless citizens. John Whitehead says, Psychopaths and politicians both have a tendency to be selfish, callous, remorseless users of others, irresponsible, pathological liars, glib, con artists, lacking in remorse, and shallow. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment and just ask you, do you find yourself nodding your head even a little bit going, yeah, that, uh, that sounds like, the, the poli- especially the politicians who have risen to the very top. I think you'll find those, those qualities, especially the long-term career, how many decades have they been in politicians? All of those things seem to fit. And John White has said charismatic politicians like criminal psychopaths exhibit a failure to accept responsibility for their actions. They have a high sense of self-worth, are chronically unstable, have socially deviant lifestyles, need constant stimulation, have parasitic lifestyles, and possess unrealistic goals. Here's the kicker. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans. He says political psychopaths are all largely cut from the same pathological cloth, brimming with seemingly easy charm and boasting, calculating minds. Such leaders eventually create pathocracies, totalitarian societies bent on power, control, and destruction of both freedom in general and those who exercise their freedom. He says once psychopaths gain power, the result is usually some form of totalitarian government or a pathocracy. That's a new word for me, by the way, but I really like it. Author James G. Long notes at that point, the government operates against the interests of its own people, except for favoring certain groups. In other words, electing a psychopath to public office is tantamount to national harakiri, the ritualized act of self-annihilation, self-destruction, and suicide. It signals the demise of democratic government and lays the groundwork for a totalitarian regime that is legalistic, militaristic, inflexible, intolerant, and inhuman. And here's the $64,000 question from John W. Whitehead. So why do we keep doing it over and over again? Incredibly, despite clear evidence of the damage that has already been inflicted on our nation and its citizens by a psychopathic government, voters continue to elect psychopaths to positions of power and influence. Indeed, there's a reason that Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, ranks highest on the list of regions populated by psychopaths. He says, when our government no longer sees us as human beings with dignity and worth, but as things to be manipulated, maneuvered, mined for data, manhandled by police, conned into believing it has our best interests at heart, mistreated, jailed if we dare step out of line, and then punished unjustly without remorse, all the while refusing to own up to its own failings, we are no longer operating under a constitutional republic. Instead, what we are experiencing is a pathocracy, tyranny at the hands of a psychopathic government, which operates against the interests of its own people, except for favoring certain groups. 
Worse, he points out, psychopath or psychopathology is not confined to those in high positions of government. It can spread like a virus among the populace. An academic study into pathocracy concluded tyranny doesn't flourish because perpetrators are helpless and ignorant of their actions. It flourishes because they actively identify with those who promote vicious acts as virtuous. I think we all know a few people who are like that. John Whitehead says the goal of the modern corporate state is obvious, to promote, cultivate, and embed a sense of shared identification among its citizens. To this end, we the people have become we the police state. He says we're fast becoming slaves in thrall to a faceless, nameless, bureaucratic, totalitarian government machine that relentlessly erodes our freedoms through countless laws, statutes, and prohibitions. Any resistance to such regimes, he says, depends on the strength of opinions in the minds of those who choose to fight back. Writing for Think Progress, Beauchamp suggests that one of the best cures to bad leaders may very well be political democracy. But what does that really mean in practical terms? Whitehead says it means holding politicians accountable for their actions and the actions of their staff using every available means at our disposal. Through investigative journalism, what used to be referred to as the Fourth Estate, that enlightens and informs, through whistleblower complaints that expose corruption, through lawsuits that challenge misconduct, and through protests and mass political action that remind the powers that be that we, the people, are the ones who call the shots. He says, remember, education precedes action. Citizens need to do the hard work of educating themselves about what the government is doing and how to hold it accountable. He pleads, don't allow yourselves to exist exclusively in an echo chamber that's restricted to views with which you agree. Expose yourself to multiple media sources, independent and mainstream, and think for yourself. He says, for that matter, no matter what your political leanings may be, don't allow your partisan bias to trump the principles that serve as the basis for our constitutional republic. That said, he says, if we allow the ballot box to become our only means of pushing back against the police state, then he says the battle is already lost. Because resistance requires a citizenry willing to be active at the local level. So until we get back to this way of thinking and understanding, our freedoms do not flow from the government. They were not given to us only to be taken away by the will of the state. They are inherently ours. And we have to safeguard them. And that's why government exists, is to safeguard them. Or you're ruled by psychopaths. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can always visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com to check out the show notes. I, I publish show notes every day that I do the show, and some of them are, are you know my own musings about what's going on. Some of them are links to various essays and articles or the websites of various guests with whom I've spoken. But uh, there's always a lot of information there at your fingertips. I also include a number of articles that sometimes I don't have time to get to during the actual program. My goal is just simply to, to give you some information that's hopefully nourishing food for thought. Something that will give you, you know, a little reason to pause and, and ponder. 
And again, that's at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please consider subscribing. If you'd like to become a patron and help support this uh, this program through a uh, monthly donation, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, I would gratefully appreciate it and promise to use that as wisely as possible to keep publishing the message of freedom. So it's been interesting over the last few months. Sweden has been kind of a thorn in the side of lockdown advocates in that uh, they've really struggled with the reality that, you know, Sweden didn't lock down its country hard. There were some measures that they put in place, but most everything they did was voluntary. The Swedish government took a pretty hands-off approach and said, look, for the, uh, to, for the truly vulnerable, the elderly, those with code morbidities who are at risk from the coronavirus, you need to stay away from public places. You need to wash your hands more, maybe wear a face covering, whatnot. But for everybody else, they were given the same information and told you need to assess your risks and what you're willing to assume and then act accordingly. And while Sweden has not been spared from the coronavirus, it has, you know, the virus has made itself felt there just as it has everywhere else. What's telling is that Sweden has not experienced a wildly, you know, different outcome than even the places that locked down hard. And there were a number of places within the European Union that really shut it down. So what can we draw from that? You know, the the obvious lesson to me is Well, the lockdowns probably weren't necessary. And furthermore, the Swedes have been, uh, you know, the the video of people out, you know, living their lives and and society looks pretty normal. You don't see people running around in masks and terrified of being, you know, within six feet of one another. Well, now there are rumors circulating, well, the Swedes are finally retreating from this failed and, and horrid strategy. Not so. Not so. John Miltimore, who has been covering this, I think he is possibly the best source that I have found uh, over the last few months on uh, covering Sweden. And I mean, really, the facts and figures that show whether or not their approach has worked. He has an article published recently on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. No, Sweden isn't abandoning its no-lockdown strategy. And he says the controversy around Sweden stems from a larger disagreement over who's more equipped to plan society, individuals or central planners. Here's what he has to say. Swedish officials announced they'd be offering authorities new COVID-19 recommendations this last week. Anders Tegnell, the nation's top epidemiologist, will be meeting with regional health authorities to discuss measures in response to case increases in Stockholm and Uppsala, a city about 70 kilometers north of the Swedish capital. This was reported by The Telegraph on Saturday. U.S. media, who've been quick and who've been critical, rather, of Sweden's lighter touch approach to the coronavirus, quickly pounced on the news, claiming Sweden was abandoning its no-lockdown strategy. Catherine Rampell, an opinion writer at Washington Post who writes on economics, tweeted, Sweden is moving away from its no-lockdown strategy and preparing strict new rules amid rising coronavirus cases. Other blue check mark accounts on Twitter celebrated Sweden's apparent reversal of its laissez-faire policy. Here's one from Laurie Garrett. Experiment failed. So much for herd immunity. And there's several of these. Now, John Miltimore says, as someone who has covered Sweden's approach to COVID for months, the news came as a bit of a surprise, especially considering the World Health Organization's recent advice against the use of lockdowns as a primary method of containing the virus. 
But he says, then I actually read the articles in question, and two facts became clear. First, the headlines are wrong. Tegnell explicitly states Sweden is not implementing a lockdown. Tegnell told Newsweek, it is the latest measures, it, rather meaning the latest measures, is not a lockdown, but some extra recommendations might be communicated locally when a need from regional authorities is communicated. Now, Newsweek nevertheless ran the alarmist headline, Sweden, which refused lockdown during COVID first wave, imposes restrictions as cases soar. Oh my gosh, they are so wedded to that narrative of fear, fear, fear. But as John Mildemore points out, recommendations is the key word here. A careful reading of Tegnell's comments and the actual reporting makes it clear Sweden has not yet imposed any new restrictions, let alone a lockdown. It merely will be advising regional health officials on public health recommendations to slow the spread of the virus following a resurgence of cases in October. As Business Insider reports, the new strategy will give local authorities the power to strongly recommend people to avoid busy places like shopping centers, museums, gyms, concerts, and sports matches. Swedes may also be asked to avoid public transportation and contact with those considered most vulnerable to severe infection. Now, John Miltimore says that might sound more like the policy of the U.S., where federalism has allowed states latitude to implement policies based on recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other federal agencies. But he says the big difference, of course, is that despite the change, Swedish officials are still asking and recommending. And this is a stark contrast to the approach of many other countries, as well as many U.S. states. These governments are not asking or recommending. They are mandating social distancing and lockdowns. And citizens who do not comply are shut down, fined, jailed, even beaten. Now, you don't have to read the fine print of the articles to see that Sweden is not taking this approach. Business Insider reports, unlike in other countries, there are not expected to be fines or legal consequences for people who decide not to follow any new advice. Bit Brosted, the chief legal officer at Sweden's public health agency, said rules were something in between regulations and recommendations, end quote. So despite clear statements from Tegnell saying the strategy is not a lockdown and the clear absence of fines or legal consequences, many seem intent on framing Sweden's announcement as a lockdown. Indeed, despite its own reporting, Business Insider's headline stated, Sweden is moving away from its no-lockdown strategy. And John Miltimore says the question is why? He says there are two explanations that come to mind. First, it's not uncommon for people to tweet or share articles that they didn't bother to read. One analysis the Washington Post reported found that as many as 60% of the links shared on social media haven't been read. In other words, people are more willing to share an article than read it, said study co-author Arnold Legout. Apparently, this may even include certain distinguished journalists on Twitter who share sloppily headlined articles because the article supports something they want to be true, but is actually not true. The second possibility, he says, is that people are attempting to distort the truth about what's actually happening in Sweden, consciously or subconsciously. John Miltimore says, as he noted months ago, Sweden has become a punching bag for many intellectuals and lockdown proponents because it has rejected the conventional approach to lockdowns by embracing a more laissez-faire approach to the pandemic instead of a centrally planned one, Sweden undermines the narrative that the lockdowns were necessary and saved millions of lives. 
And in doing so, Sweden has also found itself thrust into a larger battle over who is more equipped to plan society, individuals or central planners. As the economist Ludwig von Mises famously observed, a great deal of modern strife is the struggle over who designs the world, individuals or authorities. Mises saw, Authorities seek the substitution of the planner's own plan for the plans of his fellow men. And he says, in a sense, the pandemic became the most expensive, expansive experiment in central planning since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we're seeing its fruits today. You'll find the article linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Just a couple quick thoughts here again before I move on from John Miltimore's article about whether Sweden is abandoning its no-lockdown policy. Obviously, if you read the articles, it's clear. They are, they are not instituting lockdowns. They're not instituting mandates. They're not putting fines and punishment together. But it seems like there are many within the press around the world who just are intent. Well, see, we told you so. I don't know why they are so filled with doom and gloom and the idea that this is how it's got to be. We've just got to lock it down. I, I refer to it as fear porn. Uh, one of our one of uh, the most uh, prominent news sources in my home state of Utah just seems rife with this approach. There is no report ever on COVID-19 that isn't based in, well, here's, here's the worst possible scenario, and you better do what the authorities are telling you. It's like they get a contact high off of authority, and I, I don't really understand it. There's, there's no objectivity. It's just purely, we better do what Master says, with a little fear, you know, pasted on around the edges. John Miltimore just asks that you consider the lockdown approach. Lock it down. We're going to stop this virus by locking everything down. These, these lockdowns have resulted in trillions of dollars in economic losses. Eight million Americans have been driven into poverty. One hundred million have been driven into extreme poverty globally. By the way, he has links to these uh, facts and figures here. This isn't just numbers he's pulling out of thin air. Social isolation has driven untold numbers of people to suicide, drug overdoses, and depression. And again, he has the articles to back this up. And he says, for the people who designed these policies, supported them, and believe in them today, it's important that they're viewed as a success. Yeah, otherwise people would be breaking out the tar and feathers. He says, after all, we're witnessing the most sweeping infringement of economic liberty in American history. If it's discovered that this devastation was in vain, that nations without lockdowns experienced the virus in much the same way as nations with lockdowns, there will be a reckoning. The experts know this, and he says that's why Sweden must fail, regardless of the actual results of its policies. I think that's possibly the most disturbing aspect of everything that has transpired over the course of this year. And I think people will find, I think that the, the authorities who made these decisions and are now clinging to them and doubling down on them, 
I think they would find that if they would be human enough and, and humble enough to admit we made a mistake, we overreacted, and maybe even say the words, we are sorry, people would be forgiving and at least would, would know, okay, they're being straight with us. But the more they continue to lie, the more they continue to obfuscate and, and to, to try to put on, well, this just proves you know, that we need to lock down even harder, that trust, which they need in order to, to do what they're trying to do, evaporates. I mean, I haven't had that strong of trust for, for people in government, particularly politicians, for a very long time. But I'm seeing even people who what one, one time were true believers are now saying, uh, this isn't adding up. I don't know if I, can, if I can trust them. So maybe that's a good thing. There's our silver lining. Yay. <laughs> By the way, there's a lot going on. We all have a lot on our plates, and this could especially be said for, for the entire nation at this point. We've got economic turmoil, we've got civil unrest, and there's global instability. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff happening geopolitically that uh, the U.S. is neck deep in. Here's a question that comes up, though. Can America do it all? Pat Buchanan says, we're about to find out. Listen to some of the facts and figures he lays out here. He says, in fiscal year 2020, which ended September 30th, the U.S. government set some impressive new records. The deficit came in at $3.1 trillion, twice the previous record of $1.4 trillion in 2009, which was set during the Great Depression, Great Recession, rather, and three times the 2019 deficit of about $1 trillion. Federal spending hit $6.5 trillion, one-third of U.S. gross domestic product, a share unrivaled except for the later years of World War II when federal, exp- federal spending exceeded 40% of GDP. The U.S. national debt, $14 trillion when Donald Trump took office, now stands at $21 trillion, roughly the same size as U.S. GDP. In fiscal year 2021, the deficit could be of the same magnitude as 2020. Why so? Well, Buchanan says, first, the economy is not fully recovered from the 2020 depression. Unemployment is still near 8%. Nancy Pelosi has already proposed $2.2 trillion in new spending to battle the effects of the coronavirus pandemic in the first month of this fiscal year. And COVID-19 cases are spiking again. So he says, with the national debt already equal to the GDP and growing faster now, a question arises, where does this end? This is a question that puts fear in the hearts of uh, a number of people who realize it can't go on like this forever. He asks, how many more multi-trillion dollar deficits can we sustain before the quality of U.S. debt is called into question by Japan, China, and other nations that traditionally buy and hold U.S. debt? How long before the value of the U.S. dollar is questioned? How long before our creditors start demanding higher interest rates to compensate for the rising risks they're taking in buying the bonds of so profligate a nation? According to Stein's Law, named after Herb Stein, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors who enunciated it, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Or was Herb Stein wrong? And we can borrow and spend forever. Buchanan says, consider the built-in engines of spending that were causing trillion-dollar deficits even before coronavirus hit. 
with the huge baby boomer generation born between 1946 and 1964, only half retired and still reaching 65 and 66 in the millions each year, the claims on Social Security and Medicare, the two largest programs in the U.S. budget, are certain to grow. So too are the claims on Medicaid, health care for the poor, the next largest item in the budget. With unemployment at 8%, other social programs that date to the Great Society days of over half a century ago, welfare, housing, education, nutrition, and consume a large share of our budget, they are unlikely to shrink. Interest on debt, as the U.S. national debt rises and becomes riskier, is also likely to be headed one way, straight up. And that brings us to the other major budget item, national defense. The Trump era has already produced a significant increase in defense spending, while some while defense commitments have seen no reduction. And Pat Buchanan reminds us, we're obligated to defend some 30 NATO allies from the Atlantic to the Baltic and Black Seas. In the Middle and Near East, we have troops stationed in Turkey, Syria, Iran, I'm sorry, Iraq, that might have been a Freudian slip there, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, the uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Afghanistan, and Djibouti on the Horn of Africa. With the new strategic pivot to Asia, U.S. troops and ships have moved into the Indo-Pacific region to contain China in what's being called Cold War II. And then there are U.S. treaty commitments to defend Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, and New Zealand dating back to the 1950s. Allies are our strength, we are told. But Pat Buchanan reminds us they're also our dependents. And he points out to, to just the other morning came press reports that ISIS, whose caliphate in Syria and Iraq we annihilated, is turning up in Africa. A new front may be opening up in the global war on terror. So the question here is a simple one. Can we continue to do it all? The obvious answer being our resources are not inexhaustible. Already, he points out, U.S. GDP is receding as a share of global GDP, the defense budget is receding as a share of U.S. GDP. He says, we are obligated to do more and more at home and abroad while our share of the world's wealth is less and less. Can we continue to maintain strategic parity and contain the ambitions of the other great powers, Russia and China? Can we continue to defend South Korea and Japan from Kim Jong-un and his nuclear arsenal? confront and choke the Ayatollah's regime in Iran, and at the same time, reconstruct George H.W. Bush's New World Order. And Pat Buchanan says, while doing all this, can we overcome the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu of a hundred years ago and deal with a national divide and racial crisis as bad as any since the 1960s, if not the Civil War? And the answer to that question is, we are going to find out. So what does this mean for you and me, right? Because this is, this is pretty big picture stuff. This is the view from 30,000 feet up. Wow, that looks pretty intimidating. So what, are the stu- what, what kind of stuff can you and I do to better our position? This may sound trite, but I'm going to say it anyway. Get your own house in order. And the way that starts is by getting your own heart in order. Know who you are, know what you stand for, and I promise you the pieces will fall into place from there. But it starts with you, and it starts with me, not from the top. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Wonderful people. John Staples and his wife, Heather, are a part of a team that is active in 23 different states, that being Patriot Home Mortgage. And if you are looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, maybe you're just looking to get pre-qualified so you can go out there and shop for the home of your dreams, talk to my friends with the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage first. Let them do the legwork for you. Let them be the ones to, uh, to help you realize that dream. You can find them by going to staplesmortgage.com. That's staplesmortgage.com. So I've watched with a lot of interest over the last couple of years, mainly because I, I kind of had a front row seat to watch uh, Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute um, conceive and publish the book The Tuttle Twins. The Tuttle Twins series is uh, a remarkable series of books that teach essential lessons about free markets and principles of liberty to kids. And, and it doesn't dumb down these concepts, but puts them into a story format that, uh, that illustrates how these principles work in the real world. And because of the success, and I mean, he has sold a lot of these books. I think uh, 1.4 million books have been sold to this point. Pretty impressive. But it attracts attention, as you might guess. You, you know you're doing something right when the opposition increases. This is uh, kind of a hard lesson to learn because when opposition comes, it usually isn't pleasant. Nobody likes to have you know their, their intelligence called into question or their motives called into question. But uh, that's exactly what has happened. Kerry McDonald, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has uh, a, a marvelous story to share that, uh, that shows you that, yes, the Tuttle Twins have attracted the attention of some people who are very angry that free market ideas are being put into the minds of young children before they can be thoroughly indoctrinated to socialism. And boy, are the socialists upset about it. But there's, there's even a better silver lining than, uh, yeah, they're getting opposition, so they must be having impact. Carrie explains. She says, as Connor Boyack recently discovered, there is no such thing as bad publicity. The creator of the popular Tuttle Twins children's book series, which reinforces libertarian values and free market principles, saw his book sales surge after an established progressive magazine wrote a lengthy feature article attacking the books. Current Affairs published the expletive-laden piece in its July-August print issue, calling libertarianism one of the most disgraceful political tendencies in the world. Now, apparently not everyone agreed with the far-left writer Rob Larson that a political philosophy grounded in individual rights, personal responsibility, and consent is disgraceful. Soon after the article appeared online at the end of September, Boyack noted record sales of the Tuttle Twins books, which have already sold more than 1.4 million copies. She said, uh, Boyack told her in a recent interview, overall, it's clear the author, a dedicated socialist, has a fundamental disagreement with our values and perspective. When a socialist calls your free market literature a cliche-ridden heap of steaming garbage... It's not a criticism. It's a badge of honor you wear proudly. It means we're doing something right to provoke this kind of ire from someone who sees liberty as one of the most disgraceful political tendencies in the world. 
Now, Carrie says the magazine took great care to craft its Tuttle Twins uh, critique, including creating custom illustrations to match the style of Tuttle Twins illustrator Elijah Stanfield, who the writer demeans and dismisses because he produced campaign videos for Ron Paul's 2012 presidential campaign, in case you were thinking of letting him off the hook. She says the Tuttle Twins books take libertarian and free market themes and texts and make them accessible to children. For example, the Tuttle Twins Learn About the Law incorporates ideas from Frederick Bastiat's The Law. And the Tuttle Twins in the Search for Atlas highlights the message from Ayn Rand's book Atlas Shrugged. There's even a book that illustrates the themes from Fee founder Leonard Reed's classic 1958 essay, I Pencil. The Tuttle Twins and the Miraculous Pencil reinforces the economic principles of spontaneous order and human cooperation through trade. Concepts the current affairs writer complains teach children market worship. <laughs> Boyack said that he was actually impressed to see that they invested the amount of time they did in developing their harsh Tuttle Twins review rather than the cursory attack his books got from left-wing media outlet Salon in 2017. These continued condemnations from the left drive Boyack to produce more content and to elevate the book's reach. In fact, last week, Newsweek reported the Tuttle Twins content will appear as a new animated video series produced by VidAngel in 2021, reaching even more families with fresh material on libertarian themes. These themes are what the Current Affairs article calls libertarian propaganda for defenseless kids. While obviously not acknowledging that much of what today's public school children experience in their classrooms is propaganda from the left. And Carrie McDonald says, indeed, as she recently wrote, the nation's teachers' unions have long been deeply connected to the Democratic Party and left-wing ideology, pushing their progressive agenda in both politics and in the classroom. The Tuttle Twins' books and curriculum offer parents high-quality resources to provide their children with a broader perspective on political economy, or political philosophy, rather, and economics. According to Boyack, quote, the left has dominated the education of the rising generation for decades. Teachers see their students increasingly as the front line of the battle for the future of our nation. For too long, parents have surrendered their children to the indoctrination of these social reformers. The Tuttle Twins is finally giving parents a shield to defend their kids and a sword to fight back. He says, our ideological enemy isn't used to facing organized opposition. We present a threat to those who want to continue molding the minds of children to support socialism, end quote. Now, she says, Boyack, who's offering 50% off his 11-book series through the end of October with the appropriately named coupon Current Affairs, <laughs> says that he's shipping over 4,000 Tuttle Twins book, books a day to families who care about libertarian ideals and want to share their, these principles with their children. So while the current affairs writer may demonize the free market, the free market is working to meet demand and encourage the creation of related products and services that consumers find valuable. This is the miracle of the market that Leonard Reed describes so eloquently in I, Pencil. Quote, For if one is aware that these know-hows will naturally, yes, automatically arrange themselves into creative and productive patterns in response to human necessity and demand, that is, in the absence of governmental or any other coercive masterminding, then one will possess an absolutely essential ingredient for freedom, a faith in free people. Freedom is impossible without without this faith. End quote. Carrie MacDonald concludes, 
by saying Boyack and the Tuttle Twins are helping to spread this message of freedom to more families, while critiques from the left only work to accelerate market demand. I love it. That is, uh, that's poetic justice, and it makes me happy to see this, mainly because I, I know uh, I know Connor personally, and I'm just going to tell you, there is, there's not a harder-working person in the cause of liberty. The guy is like a machine. He works the longest hours. He constantly has multiple projects going on at any time. Um, he's a very talented, very creative individual and could be living a very uh, comfortable life of luxury if he so chose. But instead, I see him taking you know all the proceeds that he gets from the sales of these books. And I think he's written, he may have written a dozen books now, maybe 13 books. And they go back into the various organizations, the nonprofit think tank that he's founded, Libertas Institute, as well as others, that uh, that go towards promoting the cause of liberty. It's it's one of the best success stories that I can point to in America today. And I especially agree with his approach of we need to be getting this information into the hands and into the minds of our kids. And while the left may portray this as indoctrinating them, you're just trying to, you know, program their little minds, I think that's a pretty classic case of psychological projection. And I think that the the anger that you see in pieces like this uh, current affairs uh, piece, I think that uh, that's just anger that we didn't get to the kids first or that someone is countering our attempts to, to, you know, control their little minds. I know it seems like a a sacrifice of time to sit and to read to kids or your grandkids or whatever the case may be. But there are an awful lot of adults out there who have had these ideas hammered into them, often through public schooling, over the course of many generations. And it's hard to unlearn things that you were taught were true from a very, very early age. It's a lot easier to teach kids correct principles than it is to uh, correct adults who have grown up and are clinging to incorrect principles. Does that make sense? So keep working to better yourself, better your understanding, share that light, especially with the younger generation. I, I promise you, they get it. They really do. And the Tuttle Twins is a marvelous tool for helping them to understand. This is The Brian Hyde Show.